Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And and you you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer hour be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god, to whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past? Now, sir, what of him? He's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance, blew it. What? That's a scene from the 1973 folk horror film The Wicker Man. In this film, a Scottish police investigator flies to Summer Isle, a remote island off West Scotland, to look for a missing girl. The locals seem friendly enough, but are clearly hiding something, and the devout Sergeant Howie is shocked to discover that the island's churches are in ruins, the ministers have fled, and the islanders are pagans who celebrate sex as a part of nature's fertility cycles. In the clip you just heard, Sergeant Howie is speaking with the Lord Summer Isle, who owns the land and who not only tolerates but encourages the sex magical rites that so astonish the good policeman. After a profitable trip to the library, Sergeant Howie learns that in olden times blood sacrifices would be offered to appease the gods after a bad harvest, and he is led to believe that the missing girl is to be sacrificed on Beltane. The problem of sacrifice haunts this film. And in this episode, J.F. and I think through pagan and Christian ideas of sacrifice. The Wicker Man is a vision of paganism that is delectable and seductive and cruel. On Summer Isle, we encounter people who live in nature, who are nature, red in tooth and claw. Christianity was always meant to lift us out of the cruel condition of the human, entirely unalienated from nature. It sought to do so through a new kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice so great that it would do for all and forever. One thing we discuss in this episode is whether that project still has some life in it, or whether Jesus Christ blew it, as Lord Summerisle blandly informs an apoplectic Sergeant Howie. You see, his experiments had led him to believe that it was possible to induce here the successful growth of certain new strains of fruit that he had developed. So... With typical mid-Victorian zeal, he set to work. The best way of accomplishing this, so it seemed to him, was to rouse the people from their apathy by giving them back their joyous old gods. And that as a result of this worship, the barren island would burgeon and bring forth fruit in great abundance. What he did, of course, was to develop new cultivars of hardy fruit suited to local conditions. Well, of course, to begin with, they worked for him because he fed them and clothed them. But then later, when the trees started fruiting, it became a very little matter. And the ministers fled the island, never to return. 
What my grandfather had started out of expediency, my father continued out of love. He brought me out the same way, to reverence the music and the drama and the rituals of the old gods. To love nature and to fear it, and to rely on it and to appease it where necessary. He brought me up. He brought you up to be a pagan. A heathen, conceivably, but not, I hope, an unenlightened one. For all that this scene is really just plot exposition, J.F. and I spend an awful lot of time combing through it, looking for clues to the enigma of this carnal and violent world. Lord Summerisle tells Howie, and us, about his grandfather, a Victorian scientist who bought the island and found ways to grow fruit on it, and about the nature religion that drove away the churchmen. In this clip, you can hear the contrast between antagonists registered in the clash of Edward Woodward's stiff, angry voice against Christopher Lee's plummy baritone drawl. Lee's Lord Summerisle is the very picture of an enlightened heathen, which makes him all the more sinister at the film's end when he tells us who is truly to be sacrificed. Speaking of sacrifice, it is an eternal law that nothing comes for free. Every religion and magical tradition you care to name agrees on that point and differs only in the particular kind of sacrifice it recommends. Taking without giving, that's bad karma, man. Hint, hint. You know we have a Patreon, right? Well, if we don't get enough patrons to subscribe, I just might have to shove JF into a giant wooden effigy, there to await a dreadful and glorious death. But that sounds highly inconvenient, so just subscribe, okay? Thanks. Much appreciated. fact about this film, The Wicker Man, that I learned this morning, and by the way, this is the 1973 Wicker Man, not the remake with Nick Cage, which I've never seen. The Wicker Man was shot in the autumn. It looks like it was shot in the spring, but it was actually shot in the autumn. And in the scene where you see the young women of the village jumping through the fire, undergoing some kind of sex magical initiation, they're wearing body stockings, which is Pretty visible. Sergeant Howie is like, but they're naked. Yeah. Um, they're not, they're visibly not naked. But a main reason, maybe the main reason why they were wearing body stockings in that scene is because it was cold as shit. Because it was the autumn. Somehow that felt right to me that this was shot in the autumn. I There's agree. a kind of a golden glow to everything that is an autumnal beauty. And it's it's almost like that practice of a uh, day for night shooting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people do that anymore, but I know no. in the old days, sometimes people would shoot in the day, but it would be like supposedly a nighttime scene. And I guess they just use certain filters yeah. over the lenses to give the impression that it's nighttime. Um, but if you look at old day for night shooting, it's the sort of thing you saw often in like, you know, B pictures, film noir, you know, which were often cheapy pictures back in the 40s and 50s, there's a kind of an eerie look to it because it's sort of like, it's daytime, but 
It's not, or it's nighttime, but it's not. And likewise, the idea that you're looking at this verdant paradise, Summer Isle, and it supposedly takes place right at May Day, but you're seeing it in autumnal light, it somehow makes it even more verdant, more spring-like. I don't know. There's something magical about the autumn. I mean, there's something magical about the spring, obviously, but there's something of a kind of witchy magic yeah. in the autumn that transfers itself to the the springtime setting of the Wicker Man. I agree. In fact, yeah, now that you say that, I've always seen this film as very autumnal. I think I've always only ever watched it in the autumn. And the idea of doing that film for our quote-unquote Halloween show came to me because it's such an autumnal film. But then, of course, the first thing I remembered as I began to watch it is this is a film about about Beltane, about May Day, about the spring. Right. Um, and it seems like uh, every time I I watch it, I afterwards forget that this is a film about spring and always remember it as a kind of harvest time film. So maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe the light in it is autumnal. And so I, I see that despite the, uh, the narrative which takes place in the spring. I'm glad we did it though for now because this is the time of year where I watch The Wicker Man. It feels, it feels right. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of bringing this up partly because uh, I had this conversation with Meredith, our production assistant, about what's the most magical time of the year. And her argument was it was a fall. And I just recently had this really fucking bizarre experience on a beautiful fall day here in Bloomington, totally inexplicable to me. And, uh, I was like, oh, I guess proof of concept. There's something weird about the fall. The veil is the thin. Well, it's weird because the light is so... I saw this impossible thing in the broadest of broad daylight. And there's something about autumn light that is all revealing. It's mm -hmm. this bright, open light that reveals everything. And yet there's something hidden at the heart of that light. I can't yeah. quite explain it. Fantastic. It's, do you, do you want to like tell... It's like some Heideggerian shit. It's receding from us even as it emerges, you know? Yes. Yeah. Disclosing as it conceals, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I agree. And that's that's actually really apropos uh, if we're going to talk about Wicker Man. But first, did you want to tell the story of what you saw? Sure. I still find it baffling, although I'm not as freaked out by it now. I mean, because a couple of days have passed, but it freaked me out when I saw it. I was walking down this trail in Bloomington that's called the Limestone Extension. It's a broad path, like a paved path on what used to be a rail bed. And I'm walking down the path and I see a woman. She looks about 60-ish with gray hair, cropped short, wearing a check shirt, like a plaid shirt with a large blue and white check. Notable thing, the reason I'm able to describe this person in some detail is because she's carrying a fairly large hardback book. And she was walking slowly down this path, completely absorbed in the book, reading the book. So I walk a couple of hundred yards further and around a corner, the same woman emerges. <laughs> like when I say the same woman, I immediately did a huge double take. Like, wait, I just saw you. Same clothes, same hair, same build, same, I mean, same person. And this person emerges from around the corner and holding something in her hands. So I'm like, that's not a fucking book, is it? And I get close enough to see it's a book and not just a book. It is a large hardcover, the same size and shape as the book held by this person's doppelganger. Same clothes? And she, same clothes. Same person. 
So you just saw the same thing twice. That's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Re- with Weird. her with, with her nose in the book. And this time I looked hard at her as she passed. Both apparitions were walking in the opposite direction. So I was walking north and they were walking south. And if she's not the exact same person, she's a damn close likeness. And that just freaked me out. Like, okay, I for a second I thought. In fact, for more than a second, for a while after this, I'm like, am I losing my goddamn mind? And so is this some kind of epic case of deja vu? No, it didn't feel like deja vu. I actually saw the same person twice. Yeah, exactly. You remember both occasions. Like you remember seeing her and you remember seeing her again. Yeah, they took place within the same minute. And by the way, there's absolutely no way anybody, much less a 60s-ish year old person, could have doubled back. For one thing, this is on the raised part of this. It's an in out, anyways. Right. It's an in out. Even if you'd gotten off the trail and tried to make make it through the bush, you couldn't have done it because you would have had to go like sixty feet down an embankment and up somehow. There's no way. Hmm. Okay. So, what do you think that was? What What was that? I have no idea. Sounds like a ghost to me. Hmm. Could be (laughs) could be a couple of identical twins out pranking people. Could be. That's possible, but you'll probably never know. I will never know. <laughs> so I could have, at one point it occurred to me, I could run back and ask, try and like get them to talk to me. Right. But then I, I don't know. I, I certainly would to. if I would see it again. I, I think that would be a, an, an imposition that you must take action if that were to happen again. Hmm. But it'll, um, never, it'll never happen but, again. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I've seen a couple of ghosts. Or what I thought were ghosts in my time. And uh, they, they always uh, look like solid people. You don't necessarily need darkness to have scariness. I think right. that the Wicker Man is the ultimate proof of that. Because yeah. there is no real darkness in the Wicker Man. Everything's out in the open. It's a film that uses diffuse, neutral light almost in every scene. There are no, almost no shadows in the film. And that's something it shares with The Shining, which is also a film with no shadows in it. There's no darkness in The Shining. Certainly, you know, I never thought about that, but you're right. And certain other films, like I remember seeing one of the zombie movies, I can't remember which one it was, Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead, and I was a kid. Against my own better judgment, I convinced my mother to let me rent it at the stereo shop near our house. And then, of course, was totally terrified I think mainly because in this particular movie, and I'm sure a listener will be able to tell us which movie I was watching, everything happens in the daytime. So you're seeing zombies like on street corners in the middle of the day. And somehow that was infinitely more terrifying to me than seeing them creep around at night as you usually do in uh, like Night of the Living Dead or some other zombie classic. So Hmm. The Wicker Man is... One of the things that distinguishes it from other horror films, I think, is its use of light or its non-use of darkness, right? It's a weird movie, which doesn't feel like a horror until the very end. Mm -hmm. It starts off as a kind of mystery, a crime Mm -hmm. mystery, you know, this policeman's looking for a missing girl on a remote Scottish island in the west part of Scotland there. And uh, he lands, he's looking for a girl called Rowan Morrison. No one in the island seems to know who this girl is, though they're obviously lying from the start. And then it slowly 
becomes clear that this police officer, Sergeant Howie, is being manipulated and tricked by these people and that he has a part to play in a pagan ritual, which they feel is necessary to ensure that their way of life can continue. But the whole thing plays out almost like a comedy, very strange, over-the-top, clowny acting, really clear set pieces with awkward transitions between them. The first time I saw The Wicker Man, I was really disappointed. I'd only read good things about like how this was a foundational horror film. And when I saw it, I was super disappointed. I thought it was a piece of shit. But really? since then, yeah, well, just technically, it just... It's just also the, the ill-preserved film. I mean, it just looks yeah. budgety and cheap. So for all those reasons, I was disappointed the first time I saw it, even though I recognized what it was doing was cool. Like, I totally saw that. But it's a film that's grown on me every time I've watched it. I watched it with Leslie last weekend, and I was super curious to see what she thought. And she, she thought it was great. She liked it a lot. She had some interesting things to say, which might come up in what follows. But... um. I don't know. It's just, it's a movie that I think achieves horror by different means than the usual way, you know? Throughout the film, you're getting the sense that this police officer, he's he's made the object of a joke. Everyone's in on something and he's not, and he looks ridiculous and people are laughing at him. And it almost seems in good fun until the very end where it's clear that this is not being done in good fun. This is fucking as serious as it gets. And there is no way to talk these people out of carrying out what they want to do. They will do it. No matter what he says, no matter what he does, he is doomed at the end. And they never let up their kind of lighthearted, folky way of living. Like even at the very end, their demeanor remains as as mild and um, almost kind as ever. And yet they're, yeah. they're, they're performing yeah. an operation which is like... It doesn't get any more evil and horrible than than this. <laughs> the if this end. was the if yeah. this was the Minnesota State Fair, the expressions on their face while they watch this man burn to death are the same as when the Butter Queen is crowned. Exactly. It's just good folksy times. Yeah. Watching a guy burn to death in a giant wicker man. Yeah. That spoils the film in a way, but in in oh in, come on, we were I mean we're going to do that for sure. Yeah. Um, it's just that I. Uh, I personally didn't know that the first time I saw it, so it came as a quite a shock. Even though I, at that point, I expected it, but I don't yeah. think we could have made it to the end of this discussion without actually explaining. No, what so happens. let's get the spoiling out of the way. Yeah, yeah sp- he spoil is spoil the ever living shit out of it. Sergeant Howie is their chosen sacrifice to ensure a good harvest. Um, so the film yeah. takes place in the seventies, in nineteen seventy-three. April twenty-ninth is the date we're given at the very beginning, which makes it two days before May Day or Beltane, as it was called in Gaelic culture. Um, So the film inserts itself very nicely into the folk horror genre. It's often seen as the, the, not the ultimate, but the... um, the progenitor of the genre. Yeah, there were lots of folk horror films before. Were there? Um, Yeah. Uh, I wrote down a couple of titles here just to... uh, Devil Rides Out, 1968... Blood on Satan's Claws, which I haven't seen, 1971. Deliverance, which I would include in that genre, 1972. Oh, yeah. hmm. um, the idea of like that, that people out in the country are fucked up and dangerous, that was not new <laughs> then. Yeah. But The Wicker Man's always been seen as the folk horror masterpiece, right? Right. Um, 
so the uh, the film is set at that time. This modern police officer who is devout, he's a traditional Christian police officer, very status quo, who lands on this island, uh, not knowing that the people of this island are not Christian at all anymore, but are now practicing a form of, I guess, pseudo-paganism. It seems like they got their paganism from reading. I think it's just reading. like, I think actual paganism. Well, that's an interesting question. Is it reconstructionist paganism or is it like the archaic survival unbroken in a out of the way part of the British Isles? Well, actually, Christopher Lee, who plays Lord Summerisle, the lord of this island, seems to at one point just tell us the whole story of what happened. His grandfather came to the island with new Victorian science to make this island more plentiful and more um, productive agriculturally because the people of this island were starving. He brought in all these new techniques. It allowed them to grow what seems like palm trees on this island and all kinds (laughs) of fruit and stuff. And then later on, this guy's son, so Lord Summerisle's father in in the movie, brought this religion in to support this new way of living. and And then they began to perform sacrifices yearly. The sense that I got was that this was a modern reconstitution of paganism using a lot of, you know, common British tropes like the hobby horse and the punch figure and all that stuff. Yeah. There's a part where the Sergeant Howie gets all the information he needs from some, like in the library from like an encyclopedia article, he learns everything he needs to learn about these people's religion. So it looks to me like somebody just read that article and just made this religion. It just seems so flimsy and fake to me. But see, I had precisely the opposite impression because I'd read somebody online doing a precy of this film saying what you just said, that the original Lord Summer Isle pushed out the clergy on the island and gave to the Summer Isle people this newly reconstituted pagan religion. But if you listen to what Lord Summer Isle says, he talks about his grandfather letting them keep their old gods. Mm. And so the way he phrases it is that there was always this paganism there. What was artificial was the superimposition of Christianity from the mainland. Right. And that once the scientist was installed, he realized that it would actually serve his interests better for them to adhere to the old ways And my impression was that perhaps for the first generation of Lord's Summer Isle, it was a matter of expediency of letting them have their old folk religion. And then for the subsequent Lord's Summer Isle, it's more of a matter of idealism, of loving this authentic folk religion and allowing it to express itself in a way that it had been forbidden to elsewhere in the mainland. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's well, that's a really interesting discussion because we could talk about that in the context of this film or in the context of neo-paganism in general. Exactly, because one of the things that's most interesting about this film is its influence. This film is one of the biggest influences in the pagan imaginary and the folk imaginary. My friend David Brent Johnson, friend of the show, a jazz DJ here in Bloomington, yesterday came by and gave me a book that he had gotten for me. It's called Electric Eden, and it's by a guy named Rob Young, and it's about the British folk revival in the 20th century that was always heavily invested in magic and the occult, heavily invested in the idea of 
folk survivals of an ancient paganism mm -hmm. and the idea that music is almost like a kind of Ouija board that you're allowing these old forces an outlet or an exit into the modern world, the technologized world. Yeah. And Wicker Man was an incalculably important piece of expressive culture for that general drift of the imagination. The songs that were created for this film, now created by a fellow named, I think, Paul Giovanni, who's yeah. an American who came to Britain and formed a group for the express purpose of recording the soundtrack. The group was called Magnet, and it's a bunch of Royal College of Music grads who were multi-instrumentalists and folk revivalists. They created original songs, like the Willow Song, for example, which mm -hmm. is sung by the innkeeper's daughter when she tries to seduce Sergeant Howie, or the Maypole Song, which is one of the most striking sequences in the films. These are newly created songs, and yet they feel... It's sort of like that line of George Burns I sometimes like to quote, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you got it made. You know, replace sincerity with authenticity. Authenticity is everything. If you can fake that, you got it made. These are songs that are like faked authenticity. But the thing about fake authenticity is that if you are in the realm of art, the fullness of your imagination will make it authentic. It yeah. will make it real. And so these songs have become standards in the same way that fucking Autumn Leaves is a standard in the jazz tradition. Willow's song is a standard for like neo-folk and freak folk, the new weird America, like the various names that people give to these genres of folk music that expressly dwell in this folk imaginary of strange, archaic, and magical survivals from a past buried by modernity. Yeah. Uh, the songs have become absolute anchor points for that imaginary, and the film itself has become that. Right in the opening credits, which again have a Kubricky feel to them, because the film opens much like The Shining opens with uh, a plane. In this case, it's the plane, uh, the seaplane of the police officer, kind of like flying over the the highlands and the islands on the west coast of Scotland. But um, there are two pieces of music that open the film. The first one is a traditional Scottish song. And then later it switches in the same sequence to a modern kind of folk rock uh, tune by Paul Giovanni. Corn, Corn, Corn Rigs. Rigs. Corn Rigs, which is a song I find hilarious. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. It's just so of its time to me. Like it's so like 1973, like just nailed. I love it. True. It's good. True. Um, but there is a nice resonance there between the actual past that is conserved to some extent in traditional folk music and the modern attempt to capture and revive that or to somehow channel it into a modern idiom that is folk music in the pop sense, like folk rock mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. And right. so we're seeing a modern attempt to 
revive what has been buried by modernity. But of right. course, it cannot do otherwise than to give us something that is itself also a child of modernity, obviously. Right. You know, it's right. like it's like Wicca, right? Um, lots of respect for Wicca, and I don't mean to, to say any, but but it's kind of like from a scholarly point of view, Gerald Gardner invented modern Wicca. You know, <laughs> yeah. he didn't revive this ancient religion that actually existed. The idea of Margaret Murray's idea of a witch cult of Western Europe, I think in in the academic world has been largely discredited. There was no single monolithic old faith in Europe that was buried by Christianity. There were a, a multiplicity of practices that you it's debatable whether you could even apply the word faith to them. They were practices that had to do with with agriculture, time, life. They had gods in them. They had all kinds of beliefs wrapped up in them. But to think of it in terms of an old faith, the old gods, and then the new the new faith that came. It's you're already retrojecting, retroactively, kind of like reinventing what things were in light of what things are now. So, like that's an interesting conversation about what it is that they practice on this island. Have they just kept practicing this old religion while Christianity kept trying to stamp it out and failed? And now, finally, modern science and modern secular thought has realized that they're better off just practicing this old religion and they've let them do it? Or are they actively innovating what to them feels like a revival of the old, but in fact is just another utopian modern thing that they're doing? And mm. you, could, you, could, you could talk about that in the context of the Wicker Man. You could talk about it in context of uh, neo-paganism in general. It's but you know, that's, an, that's something that the film, much to its credit, does not try particularly hard to answer. It allows that to be ambiguous and Indeed, I think the film itself has a profound ambiguity mm -hmm. around the question of guilt and culpability or, or like, who's the bad guy here? Well, until the end, it's pretty clear who the bad guy is at the end. Is it not? <laughs> I don't know, because the degree to which this film, it, it added a whole new wing to the folk imaginary generally and the British folk imaginary in particular. The image of utopia, of a kind of sylvan utopia, mm -hmm. of magic and sexuality, of living in the time of the earth, living in tune with nature, the image of that that it presents is profoundly attractive, is beautiful. Yeah. And it never stops being beautiful. One of the most beautiful shots in any film I've ever seen is the last shot when and unbelievably, they were men able to capture this live. They, you know, built a huge actual size wicker man. They were, I don't think they were using like a model or anything. And the point at which the wicker man is completely consumed and its head collapses, the head collapses backwards and leaves us seeing the sun at dusk. That could have been done with a miniature version. To, to be fair, just to okay. give, I don't know if it was. It may, well, it was a good shot. Been. Well, yeah. it was a good shot. It's a anyway. fantastic shot. Well, yeah. If I can't tell whether it was a miniature or the actual thing, then well, it was if you a have good no other shot. point of reference, then you won't be able to tell. I, I, I think it looks real. Okay. <laughs> so, so do I. <laughs> I always assumed it was the real thing, but now that I think of it, timing something for the sunset is really hard because I did that this week. Uh, and so they either got really lucky or they had lots of giant wicker man lined up and they got it right. Or, um, they <laughs> okay, used, they used a miniature uh, version. All right. Let's burn number eight. It's like they built like 12 <laughs> huge wicker man, yeah. wicker men. Uh, but anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
that image is an image of beauty, not horror. But and that's he, the thing about horror. And, as, and the thing is that as he is dying and we hear him screaming as the flames engulf him, that's horrifying on its own. But it's like the horror of the cruelty of nature. It is a natural process. You are left very little doubt that the sacrifice of Sergeant Howie, it's not just a good idea. It's the law. Like, it has to happen for the continued survival of this community. That's how the, you see it? You think that that sacrifice was actually necessary for them? Yes, I do. And I will say, though, that the film allows us considerable ambiguity. So at, before he is about to be shoved into the Wicker Man, Sergeant Howie is telling them, like, your crops are going to fail. You can't do anything about the fundamental unsoundness of the idea of planting a fruit orchard on a West Scottish island. He's sort of prophesying the doom of the entire experiment. And he says to Lord Summerisle, and when the crops fail again, no less of a sacrifice than the sacrifice of you, Lord Summerisle, will do. And you can tell that that rattles Summerisle. Yeah. You could tell that that bothers him. That's the first time we've seen Lord Summerisle discomfited in any way throughout this film. His urbane and slight, uh, sort of like politely malicious exterior cracks just a little bit at that moment. And so it's quite possible that Howie is absolutely right. With his dying breath, he curses the villagers. And you think perhaps that curse will be the more powerful magic. You don't know. Right. But in the, but in the meantime... He has to die as part of the cyclical pattern of death and rebirth. The sacrifice is itself ordained by nature. By the way, I want to point out how important the idea of sacrifice is in this film. And the fact that it's seriously thematized, not just as a cheesy horror movie mechanism to kill somebody in a spectacular way, but as a serious theme of this film, that I think lends weight to the idea that Howie's sacrifice is part of the natural order of this island. Shocking and horrifying to us living in what is still, after all, basically a Christian civilization but entirely rational within the culture that we are given a glimpse of. I, I like that reading. And I, I, uh, I would just say that one of the things this horror film does that distinguishes it from other examples of horror, especially folk horror, is that there is no indication of any type of supernatural reality in this film. It's just no. a film about what certain people believe. But... <laughs> I can't help but see it as uh, a film about crazy fanatics. That's what I see it as. That's what I feel at the end. If I were to see something, there is no, there is no possible situation I can imagine where I would accept the burning of a live human and a whole bunch of animals and a wicker man as being a good thing to do. Because we're precisely not in nature. We are the beings who have been able to see there there is right and wrong okay i'm gonna push you on this sure go let's go because into it because okay this is what i mean when i say the film takes the idea of sacrifice seriously yeah the first thing that we learn about howie that the only flashback we get of his life outside of his brief visit on summer isle it's a flashback to him receiving the communion wafer yes and 
I forget what the exact words of the minister are as he takes communion, but it refers to sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus for humanity. Mm -hmm. And I should say, by the way, that since I didn't see the director's cut or final cut or whatever, I've only seen the version that's available on Amazon Prime. I think there are some other shots of his life on the mainland that they excised. But at least in the short version of the film, that's the version that most people have seen. The only thing of his life outside of his trip to Summer Isle, the only thing we see is that shot of the communion. So it's obviously important. It sets up a theme of like, what is sacrifice? And something that I find very interesting about the Christian idea of sacrifice, the Christians did not do away with the idea of sacrifice, but they substantially reconfigured it. Mm -hmm. There's a story that I've told on this show before, and I don't remember where I read this, but that has to do with the eventual triumph of Christianity in Iceland. The Christianization happened there not with fire and the sword, but mostly by persuasion, people deciding to abandon the old gods. But I believe that there's a considerable tradition of Icelandic folk magic that stuck around, that it was not persecuted and driven underground. So in Iceland, I think they're still closer to the Northern mysteries and always have been than the rest of Europe. But anyway, what I had read about that process of Christianization was that there was a kind of a convincing argument about the nature of sacrifice, that in the old gods, you would sacrifice human beings to Odin or Wotan. And those were generally criminals or, you know, if there had been a war, it would be like captured soldiers of the other army that would be sacrificed. And Christian missionaries said, well, your God demands, or at least is content with low quality sacrifices that you are offering him. Criminals, outcasts of society, people who are valueless to you. Whereas our God sacrificed his own son, the greatest human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed. And the idea is that that one surpassing sacrifice, the sacrifice of all sacrifices, would be the one sacrifice that would do for all. Yeah. And, and so instead of like, okay, this spring we need to sacrifice some animals to ensure the health of our crops... You don't need to do that anymore because the one sacrifice that matters was made and that sacrifice is binding for all time. Every crop, every birth, every human activity is sanctioned and sanctified by that act of sacrifice. And mm -hmm. so when we see Howie taking communion, that's the idea of sacrifice that he has. And that idea of sacrifice underwrites the very conception of law, the king's law that he serves. I forget who says it to him, but somewhere in the film, one of the islanders says to Howie, you don't understand sacrifice. Yeah, the Miss Rose says that, the teacher, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very significant thing because their understanding of sacrifice is the older one, where no, it's not like flipping a switch and forever the lights will stay on. Sacrifice is something that you give to a particular person, like giving a gift. It's like the difference between getting a gift on Christmas from somebody, like somebody who knows you and loves you and they get you a gift. It's like, oh my God, you're so thoughtful. I can't believe you knew that I wanted this, right? It's the difference between that kind of gift 
and getting a little card saying that the money that would have been spent on a gift for you has been donated to UNICEF. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? One idea of sacrifice or the gift is abstract and does not really pertain to particular situations, particular people, particular seasons, particular animals, etc. The other does. And when Miss Rose says, you don't understand sacrifice, I take that to be what she means. It is a statement of a fundamental orientation to the world that is practical, that is embodied, that is here and now, that is in the stuff, the matter of life, that does not make a transcendent move away from this world, but is thoroughly dug in on this world. The climactic sacrifice of Howie is, of course, monstrous, and we're supposed to feel his terror. And it is one of the most abject and terrifying scenes, being burned alive in that fucking thing. It's pretty hardcore, but at the same time, this film manages this extraordinary thing of hitting us with the horror of that, but also hitting us with the validity of the worldview within which that sacrifice makes perfect sense. The fact that it makes perfect sense, I don't debate. I debate that there is no good guy and bad guy in this movie. I know that the police officer, Sergeant Howie, is a naive, and that's, that's, his that's his problem. He doesn't understand the nature of sacrifice because he doesn't realize the pagan essence of his own beliefs. He doesn't realize exactly what you just laid out, that Christianity is founded upon an idea of sacrifice. He doesn't realize that because he doesn't realize that you can only be a Christian if you're pagan first, right? Christianity is an event in the life of a pagan, no matter what, no matter when it happens, in my, in my view anyways. So he is out of touch. He's a Puritan. So he believes in a particular iteration of human nature that does not obtain. A real human is like the people on this island. A real human realizes the necessity of sacrifice and realizes also the effectiveness of certain practices insofar as such practices align one with the forces of nature. So what I'm saying is that he's the fool, right? He actually dons the costume of the fool at the end of the film and plays that part in their parade as they're leading him without him knowing it to his doom. It's hilarious. They, but like he thinks he's cleverly infiltrated them and he's pulling one over on them. And meanwhile, they've set up the situation so he would do exactly this, put on the punch costume, cut capers with them in the procession and thereby let himself be led towards his own execution. Yeah. But the, we have to um, distinguish between the effectiveness of sacrifice and the moral value of sacrifice in the literal sense of sacrificing a human being. You could say they needed to do this in order to sustain their livelihood. But if I were to tell you about this island somewhere where the only way people will survive you know, from year to year is by sacrificing a human being... I think you would agree with me that the best thing would be to get those people off that island, right? And into a place where they can live their lives without sacrificing humans. <laughs> sacrificing humans is, is a horror. It doesn't more, get more horrific to me. Because once you've said, well, in this context, it's okay to burn a human alive for your God, then you've also justified all kinds of other horror films where there is no ambiguity as to who's the bad guy. 
If it's right then, then it's right in any case where it's effective. That means that if it works, if I can sacrifice someone and I get better crops the next year, that makes it okay for me to do that. Well, that's where I, I think we're, we're talking across purposes. Because I think no, that- No, no, I'm not actually making that argument at all. Okay, you're, you're saying- that It's not a pragmatic argument that like, oh, killing people works, so therefore they should do it because we have no evidence that it does. So all we what know, makes Howie it okay? is absolutely right in his prophecy that the crops will be, continue to fail and eventually the way this okay. story is going to play out is that Lord Summerisle himself will be sacrificed and everything will collapse in madness. That's entirely possible. No, that the sacrifice is simply the natural order of things. If you want to have a religion that is close to nature, then you have to accept the cruelty of nature itself. Now, Christianity is a huge anthropotechnic project of raising human beings above the level of yeah. nature. There's a part in the movie where Christopher Lee says precisely that. He's like, we must, uh, I don't remember how he says it. It's like, we have to return. We have to embrace our animal nature so that we're not staying awake in the middle of the night praying for forgiveness for our sins. At the beginning, when Howie's in the, the inn on the first night and he's praying and meanwhile, the innkeeper's daughter, Willow, in the next room is having sex with some rando that Lord Summerisle has given her that night. By the way, this film makes some interesting observations about women and men, uh, but we can maybe talk about that later, if at all. Um, but like Lord Summerisle is clearly embracing this ethos where civilization, especially Christian civilization, has corrupted us by separating us from the order of nature, which it is in our best interest to embrace and reunite with in order to live it out the way it is. But the point is that I would argue that that project, that idea, even the idea of an order of nature is itself already an anthropotechnic project. But there isn't this clear, easy to see, easy to know delineation of where the human ends and nature begins such that we would be able to say, if you pick that religion, you're in line with nature. If you pick that religion, you're outside of nature. I think that that's precisely an idea that could only occur in a modern Judeo-Christian kind of context. And even the idea of nature itself is the product of the modern world. So I don't think that it's that clear you know? And I don't know if it's all that unnatural for someone to stay awake in the middle of the night praying for forgiveness for their sins. Because you could make the same argument for any of the major religions. You could say that Buddhism is an anthropotechnic project to lift humans out of nature, or Islam is, or Judaism is. But I think that that line between the so-called new religions and the so-called old religions is, I don't know, it's something that I, I question I don't think, I can't imagine how that type of distinction could exist outside of a modern context in this particular instance.
Okay. I'm going to go down an argumentative rabbit hole that's going to take us further away from the film. Yeah. Just hope. <laughs> but this that, is interesting. Th- th- I hope that the consequence of it will be interesting. The problem with your argument there is the very construction of nature itself could only happen within modernity is homologous to the disenchantment argument. The idea that disenchantment is kind of a one-way trip, that modernity disenchants and thereafter any attempt at re-enchantment is always going to take place from a position of lapsed innocence, that we already know that magic doesn't work. So basically we have to convince ourselves that it does. I'm not saying any of that though. Yeah, but substitute the word nature for enchantment. You're saying that effectively that once Christianity does its thing, we can no longer imagine nature except as an anthropotechnic project. No, that's not what I'm saying. That there's no returning to, to, to that. I'm saying there's no out... Uh, there, there is no particular religious root that would be not anthropotechnic. That's what I'm saying. So I'm saying that even paganism is anthropotechnic in the same way that Christianity is. Because anthropos is part of nature. There's never been a clear delineation between the two, like a way to demarcate the human and the natural. So I'm saying that every civilization has had some idea of nature. But what I'm saying is that you, one uh, might say that that is the precondition of having a civilization at all, is being able to define yourself negatively against the background of nature. Yeah, I think that you could argue that. But of course, what constitutes the background changes constantly in history. So I'm not, sure. I'm not saying that once we're Christian, we can't go back, although that is in a certain sense true, but that's a totally separate thing. But uh, what I'm saying is that the modern way of expressing the dichotomy of the old and the new religion or paganism versus Judeo-Christian belief systems, that way of thinking is itself a product of a Judeo-Christian mentality. And so I just don't think that by shedding a certain idea, let's say uh, if we get rid of the idea of sin and the idea of the one God, then we'll go back to something that is more aligned with nature. I just think that that's kind of ridiculous because there's nothing at odds with nature in believing in sin and the one God. Like, you know, like it's like, it's all nothing nature. at odds with nature, but, but believing in sin and the one God does allow you to reconfigure the idea of sacrifice and turn it into this abstract operation by which a single sacrifice does for all. Yes. And lifts human beings out of that endless cycle of giving and taking, giving and taking with nature. And the giving sometimes requiring a kind of savagery that we cannot countenance. And by the way, I should say that I can't countenance. I'm not, none of this is me arguing on behalf of human sacrifice, right? Actually, I think one more robust argument you could make is that we never did away with the idea of human sacrifice, but we simply keep playing a three-card Monty game with ourselves and hiding the little pea under a different cup. Except that humans aren't being sacrificed. That's that's an important... well, capital punishment, for example, if we oh, are yeah, tr- absolutely. if we're seeking a scientific basis or some utilitarian basis for capital punishment, there isn't one. There is no sign whatsoever anywhere that capital punishment functions as a deterrent. No, I agree with that. I agree and, that and we so, have. And, and yeah. so we say, why do we have to? Why do we have to kill people? Uh, because we can't allow this in our society. 
well, we're not allowing it. We're going to throw them in jail forever. They can rot forever. You know, you have arguments with people about capital punishment. People will start off saying, oh, well, there's this efficacy. And then if you point out that there isn't that efficacy, you're not going to convince people, oh, maybe I should abandon my position on on uh, human sacrifice, I mean, uh, capital punishment. The motivation for capital punishment is the feeling that by doing away with a malefactor, you are in some sense redressing an imbalance. You are bringing balance to things. And that part of the human mind, I need to kill this thing in order to balance shit out. That root of like sacrificial thinking goes a lot deeper than this system or that system. And I feel like in a Christian or secular society, such as the one we have, sacrifice, including bloody sacrifice, keeps coming back in different ways. I agree with that. And that's why I agree with Miss Rose when she tells Sergeant Howie that he doesn't understand the nature of sacrifice. But again, are you pro or against capital punishment? I'm against it. Okay, that's it. That's I'm all also I'm against. About. I'm also against human sacrifice. Look, yeah. my whole thing with, you know, my whole thing with um, this pagan idea of nature is, I could put it this way: the price of innocence is cruelty. And what is being sought here is not necessarily even like this pagan view of man and nature, or or that you know, this philosophical view or that philosophical view, it is innocence. It is attempt to capture the innocence of Adam before the fall. Right. But the price of that is cruelty. Yes, I agree with that. That's true. That's why I think that's, you know, this is all comes from the fact that you were saying that there's an ambiguity between who the bad guy is. But, um, and I think that you're right. The price but of in innocence an amoral, is cruelty. Not immoral, but amoral world and the world of summer isle is an amoral world is beyond good and evil well according to the people who live there yes that's what makes them psychos <laughs> uh, and and like that so i'm going for a certain moral relativism here and you're just not having it oh i, I yeah no i i'm i'm not well i mean I mean, I'm to just, me, the worldview of the Summer Isle people makes sense. It is a totally self-consistent worldview. And within that worldview, it makes sense for I agree with that. to die. Yeah. And then from that point of view, you can't say that they're evil. They're acting out of a culture that demands that sacrifice. And that culture just is what it is. Except that we've been told by Lord Summer Isle that this entire thing was engineered by his family. No, I don't think we are told that. We're told that he let them have the old gods back. Well, I think we could listen to that scene again. I think it's a little less clear than that about, I think that it was a... Uh, All right, they, they, I'm going to share yeah. screen with you. No, we're not going go to watch the, the scene. It's too long. It, it doesn't matter because it's not clear no, I either can, way. I, I can find it very easily. You, you look pissed off. I'm no, not pissed serious. off. I've been trying yeah. to, I, this is one thing I've been trying to say for a bit. Okay, say it. Well, it's, do you, you want to watch the scene first? Well, do you think it would help uh, resolve the disagreement that we're having? I don't even think we're having a disagreement. Yeah, I'm not sure if we are. <laughs> it's not clear to me. It's ambiguous. But there's something I want to say about uh, the difference between, okay, let's just say that, I'll just say this first. You're absolutely right that the Christian idea of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is an example of 
archetypal sacrifice. You're making one sacrifice for all. You're making one sacrifice so that sacrifice is no longer necessary because it's been done for one and for all time, etc. But what's important to remember, and this is this this equivalency between the Christian idea of sacrifice and the pagan idea of sacrifice is often made, right? But there's one crucial point that's really important is that the death of Christ in the Christian ethos is not just a sacrifice. It's not something to celebrate. It's a crime. It's something that shouldn't have happened. It was something that happened because of the decisions of human beings who made a decision to take this person who told people, you know, X, Y, Z, and decided to nail him to a cross. And it so happened that he was the son of God. So it's a way for us to see the horror of our own civilization. That's the goal, is to show us the horror. It presupposes a moral universe from the beginning. Because it's, sacrifice was already surmounted with Abraham and his son. You, it's just too easy to make the comparison without noticing the stark difference. Because although the idea of the crucifixion occurred in a world where sacrifice was practiced, animal sacrifice was still practiced, I believe, by the Romans. And certainly human sacrifice was recent memory in everybody's minds. There is a, a, a shift in what sacrifice means and what sacrifice is that's really important because the crucifixion occurs in a cultural world that has already banned human sacrifice. So it's like it's bringing back human sacrifice. It's not just putting an end to it. It's bringing it back, but in light of a universe that is always already a moral theater. So that's really important because if you ignore that part, it becomes like a stupid version of pagan sacrifice. It becomes like a naive version of pagan sacrifice, which it's not. It's taking the archetype and doing something different with it. It's not just a cheap substitute for sacrifice. It's a transcendence of sacrifice, of the idea of sacrifice, or at least it wants to be a transcendence of the idea of sacrifice. Well, this opens up the question, did it work? And that is something that Lord Summerisle explicitly addresses. At one point when he's having this conversation with Howie, Howie explodes in outrage and says, but what of Jesus Christ? Yes. Yeah. And, and Lord Summerisle says, he died. Yeah. He oh, had yeah. his chance. Yeah. And in the common parlance, he blew it. Right. And so the question becomes like, did it work? And I think the fact that human sacrifice creeps back in whatever juridical, legal framework, the well, fact it, that it keeps coming, the fact that you can never kind of do without it, it always comes up in some form or another, seems to suggest that it didn't work. Well, I agree. It didn't work. Well, look at Christianity today. Of course, it didn't work. Um, yeah. It didn't so work. So Samarile was right. Jesus Christ, yeah. he had his chance. He blew it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, when, some, when Lord Summerall says he blew it, he's talking, and so far as we can tell from what's going on in the story, he's talking about he wasn't able to make life better for the people on this island. So what right. does work is the worship of the old gods. And that's actually a really interesting discussion because you have to ask yourself what happens after Christianity. Right, Since if the Christian religion blew it, if it doesn't work, then what comes after? And I think that 
in all its ambiguity, the film is warning us about the dangers of what might come after. I was going to say, that's what this movie is about, is what comes after. Yeah, because also there's an interesting part of this movie is that it is in a sense, maybe without wanting to be, it is in a sense a kind of commentary on the counterculture, right? On 60s counterculture. The weird parallels between how these people live and how like the hippies wanted to exist, the way that oh, they've, yeah. they've uh, you know, doffed the mantle of moral rectitude in order to embrace free love and, and all right. that. And the weird uh, parallels in the soundtrack between the old, actual old folk music and then this new pop folk rock. And then at the end, when the horror is revealed, when Rowan Morrison suddenly appears and she's still alive and idiot that he is, how he starts to like run with her through this cave system. Then we get full on Woodstock style jam rock. Like it's like we finally see, okay, this is, we're talking about a modern idea of how society should function, that we should give up a lot of the structures and traditions that have confined us in order to embrace a more uh, accepting, more compassionate, more libertarian way of life. But then, of course, the very next scene is the revelation of the wicker man and the sacrifice. It's like that might be the price we pay for getting rid of all this uh, civilizational baggage, right? The price might be high. The price of innocence is paid in cruelty. That's what you were saying. And I hold to that. I want to point out, though, that the musical last word is not 60s folk rock. It's Sumer Istakumen In. Yes. <laughs> which is the oldest song that exists in notated form in English. Yeah. You know, as a musicologist, I'm going to nerd out at the appearance of Sumer Istakumen In, sung by the entire village joyfully as Sergeant Howie burns to death. Yeah. Marching band uh, style. A wonderful example of anempathetic scoring. This joyous old song the counterpoint to which is the screams of a man burning to death. I can hardly think of a better image of that axiom that innocence is paid for in cruelty. But that is the last image that the film leaves with us. That is an archaic image. It might be an archaism that emerges within modernity, but I would argue actually that that in fact is the signature of this kind of art. It's the weird interpenetration of what's next, the future, and the archaic time out of mind past. Mm -hmm. So actually, I have a uh, a passage that I want to read to you from a book. This is from Rob Young's Electric Eden. Thank you, David, for giving me this book yesterday. The British folk revival and the music of The Wicker Man can be traced ultimately to a man named Cecil Sharp, who was a man who lived in the first part of the 20th century and devoted himself to the research of old folk music and old folk traditions, going to the remotest corners of the British Isles and recording the songs and dances of the people who lived in those places. He was by no means the only one. In fact, this is an important trend in early 20th century modernist English music. Gustav Holst and Rafe von Williams were both composers, important composers whose music is still played a lot today, who sought very much the same things. And who, by the way, particularly Holst, had a kind of an occult streak a mile wide. So this sort of mixture of the old folk imaginary and occultism that's present from the beginning. But Rob Young is telling a story of going and seeing a film presentation 
in London. And in this film presentation, somebody had found an ancient, like, silent film clip of Cecil Sharp dancing a country dance with several friends. Rob Young is explaining how this tiny little clip from 1912 is in an archaic and forgotten film medium called the Kinora. And he describes how those Kinora spools were were transferred to modern film stock. And Rob Young is describing the actual screening of this ancient, puzzling little piece of, um, not ancient, but, you know, it's the thing about watching very, very old film, even though it's only from the early 20th century, it doesn't really feel that long ago, a little more than 100 years. Nevertheless, there's something about the archaism of the film itself that has yeah. a kind of an aura of strangeness. And of course, it's capturing folk reconstructionists reconstructing something of great age, something truly ancient. Anyway, so Young explains the Kenora spools are silent, of course. Filmed two years before the outbreak of the First World War, they date from long before the advent of the film soundtrack. In 1982, financed by a grant from the Sheffield Morris Ring, they were transferred faithfully to film stock, simply to prolong their life and to extend it beyond the extinct Kenora device. It's a reminder that Cecil Sharp was a creature of the pre-phonographic era. While his contemporary Percy Granger hauled a cumbersome wax cylinder recording device around the English countryside to record village laborers reciting old folk songs, Sharp's own song collecting was all transcribed by hand in notebooks. But Butterworth, Sharp, and the Carpella's sisters, the people who were dancing in this little film, must have been dancing to something on the day these images were preserved. So here at the BFI, the events curators have arranged for a fiddle player, Laurel Swift, to stand beside the screen and play jigs that match the dance moves. It only lasts three minutes at most, but there's something about this recital that triggers an indescribable reverie, as music present stretches through the screen's shining portal to touch, however briefly, a set of actions nearly a century old. There's Sharp, in his specs and loose-fitting flannel suit, prancing in this corner of a garden with abandoned joyous innocence. It's a full 18 years before the posthumous building of the house that still bears his name and contains his legacy. And here's vigorous 29-year-old Butterworth, composer of English ideals, songs romantic and rueful, a year away from completing his rich orchestral tapestry of folk tunes, The Banks of Greenwillow. In four years' time, his blazered torso and jigging, cricket-trousered legs will be prone and lifeless in the mud of the Somme. But they dance as if the music from the fiddle in front of us, alive and resonant, is bubbling just out of camera range in this secret garden. The illusion becomes absolute, to the point where it is unclear whether the music is driving the picture or the image is guiding the music. Perhaps I find myself thinking, this is the nearest thing to time travel it's possible to experience. This alchemy of live music and ancient film creates a conduit, a wormhole, a charmed shortcut through the huge block of elapsed time. In this moment, I feel like a guest in the Edenic corner of England depicted in these historic vignettes. And conversely, the two-dimensional dancers momentarily become guests in our own time. And then the lights go up. And what he's talking about is a fantasy of time travel that emerges precisely because of mediation, not despite mediation. We're used right. to the idea that mediation 
you know, the way that things come filtered to us through microphones and camera lenses and so on, that that is the thing that distances us from the real, and distances us from the past. There's always this slightly aching feeling of nostalgia when you watch an old film, like, for example, if you're watching an old home movie of a beloved family member who has since died, this desire to want to reach through the mediation to touch that past. But here he's talking about this moment where you feel that that impossible thing happens, that precisely because of the mediation, in conjunction with music, something impossible happens, that we find ourselves in communion with an archaic past. Mm -hmm. And that idea that modern media, that modern technology, that the accoutrements of our modern condition there is some omega point where those things bend together with the very antiquity or archaism that they supposedly dispel. That idea that, in fact, it is the meeting of the modern and the archaic that permits the possibility of this impossible travel, this impossible experience, this wormhole portal travel. That idea is a deep trope. You find it all over the place. You find it in Afrofuturism. You find it in mid-century pop exotica. I wrote an article about this called Taboo, Time and Belief in Exotica. This is all about this. And as Jung continues to think about British music and folk music, he's thinking about this example, the story, this anecdote he tells, mm -hmm. as a figure for something really general and important. He says, Britain's literature, poetry, art, and music abounds in secret gardens, wonderlands, paradises lost, postponed or regained, Avalon, Xanadu, Arden, Prospero's Ireland, Tirnanog, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Middle Earth, Narnia, Elador, Utopia, the New Atlantis, Erewhon, the perfumed garden, fictive domains that subtly swap the present for alternative speculations. British music accumulates a powerful charge when it deals with a sense of something unrecoupable, a lost estate. One of the most vivid indicators of the changes affecting the nation is marked upon its physical terrain. I wanted to grasp how British musicians and composers have drawn on an idea of folk alongside a literary or cinematic sense of nostalgia and connection with the landscape, all of which feeds into an encompassing expression of Britain that Blake at least called visionary. Mm, yeah, I like that. That's that's fantastic. I think now we're coming to, uh, we're getting to a new place. I think it's important to recognize that there when we're talking about the Wicker Man and whether, let's say, whether the depiction of paganism in The Wicker Man is an example of some kind of modern attempt to recreate something that's actually been lost, or whether it's an actual preservation or a license to practice in the open what was formerly practiced in secret. I don't know. And, and also how this all relates to art and to the film as an experience and to the music in the film. You know, one concept we've touched on a few times on this show is the is Nietzsche's idea of the untimely, that through the aesthetic, through art, you can touch on this dimension of reality, which is absolutely real, but is usually occluded in our historicist way of, of interpreting time and change in everyday life. So that what's going on in that example 
which uh, Rob Young experienced of this new music that's basically somebody's best guess as to what kind of stuff these women might have been dancing to. The juxtaposition of that artistic performance, that operation, with the actual old film creates a an immediacy of the archaic past that is more real, maybe, than if the film had had an original soundtrack, you know? The attempt, the operation itself is what revives something that transcends both the present in which the film is being shown and also even transcends the past, the, the, what the film actually archives. It hits on what all of these different elements are trying to get at, which is the actual expression of the real that occurs both in the screening and in the original performance. Like it's something outside of history, right? Like when I was a kid, a friend of mine, his grandfather would take him every year. He was a very devout French-Canadian Catholic. And on Easter Sunday, before dawn, he would take him out into the woods and they would go and collect what's called haute pâque. Haute pâque in French means like Easter water. I don't know if this is done outside of the Franco-Canadian world, but I've heard about it since. Like in the, on Easter morning, right at dawn, if you go, you find a spring in the woods and you take the water and that water is basically just automatic holy water. It'll kill vampires and shit. <laughs> you know, like it's got all these properties. And then I was reading about Beltane in preparation for this. And I was, I didn't know about this, but there's something called uh, Beltane dew, which is water that the ancient Celts would go and collect on Beltane in the morning, and it would have all those magical properties. In other words, this really devout Catholic grandfather was inhabiting the, precisely the same universe as the ancient Celts on Easter morning. It's just that all that got changed were the names and the, the metaphysical assumptions surrounding probably the various practices or whatever, beliefs. So what I'm saying is that there is a level at which we're all living in the same world, whether we died 500 years ago or are living today. We all inhabit the same mysterious universe. You know, one of my favorite things about The Wicker Man is the very end of the film where the village is singing the song and Sergeant Howie, the police officer, is, is about to burn to death in The Wicker Man. And he's singing church hymns while they, because that's also part of the last musical moment. It's a juxtaposition of the, the old- Psalm 23. Yeah, exactly. Psalm, yeah, right. Psalm 23 juxtaposed with uh, the- Sumerus uh, Tecumenen. Sumerus Tecumenen, yeah. So we know at this point that the offering is being made to their sun god, amongst others. But I think the sun god is privileged in uh, Lord Summerisle's little speech. They're offering this sacrifice to the sun so that the harvest goes well next year. Meanwhile, Howie is sitting in the wicker man, about to burn to death, and he's singing Psalm 23, staring at something. We see him looking over at something the whole time. And that final shot where we see the reverse shot of the wicker man collapsing, and we see what he's been looking at the whole time. He's been looking at the setting sun. They're both praying both the pagans and the Christian are praying mm. to the same object. They're praying to the sun. The sun at this point becoming for us as viewers, the symbol of the weird mystery around which all of these different religious practices evolve. They're all attempts at getting at something, at appeasing something or petitioning something or communicating with something that is completely beyond our capacity to conceptualize. So, 
both at that level, at the level of the untimely, at the level in which we all inhabit this radical mystery, all religions are attempts at expressing, giving expression to the sense of mystery. And in a way, the film has a very happy ending. Because as yeah. Summerall himself points out, you'll be given what no Christian ever gets to these days, a martyr's death. A martyr's death, death. yeah. He, he gets a martyr's death. He gets to pray to the sun while he dies, while he burns to death. And the village gets to have its sacrifice and offer it up to the sun. But the sun, of course, remains completely impartial. It floats there aloof in the sky, doing what it's always done, being as mysterious as it has always been, as inexplicable and as demanding of explanation, as demanding of sense, and as demanding, ultimately, of sacrifice as it ever was. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.